the year was 1514, a young mathematician wrote a little book that turned the world upside down. He was afraid to publish it for fear of the controversy that it would cause. He circulated it among a few friends and his friends encouraged him to publish it, but he refused to do so. He resisted, in fact, until his death 30 years later when this little book was finally published. And when it was published, it did indeed turn the world upside down. The man's name was Nicholas Copernicus, and his book was called On the Revolution of the Celestial Spheres. And this book challenged the prevailing model of the universe, because for centuries people had believed that the earth is the center of the universe, and everything revolves around the earth, the sun and the moon and all of this. But Copernicus, based on his astronomical observations, proposed that in fact the sun is the center of the universe. And the earth is one of the many orbs that revolve around the sun. Of course, maybe you are familiar with the phrase Copernican revolution. Copernicus's discovery was so paradigm shifting, so explosive, that this phrase has made its way into the English language to describe a change of thinking. Well, today our text gives us a Copernican revolution as it relates to how we think about God and His relationship to us. You see, all our lives we've been conditioned to think, we've been trained to think that everything revolves around us. We think that God exists to meet our needs. Now, this kind of thinking is very common in the world, of course, among non-Christians, but it's common among Christians as well. We fall into this kind of thinking. We read the Bible and we think that the Bible is a book all about us. God's plans for us, for me and my life. Worship becomes all about us. These days more and more you hear people talk about the worship experience. What kind of a worship experience did you have? What kind of worship experience did you get? Worship is me and my private little time to stir up my emotions, to fill my emotional and spiritual needs. But you see friends, the Bible and passages like today actually turn our world upside down with a Copernican revolution. The Bible shows us the ultimate purpose why God does all that He does. It's not merely about us. The Bible is all about Him. It's so that He, the King of creation, the Lord, receives the worship and the glory of which He is worthy. So maybe you've been here listening to this Zechariah series for the last several months and even as we've seen God's amazing promises in the book of Zechariah, maybe you've begun to think, we see these promises to a broken and needy people and that's amazing. But you would be wrong to think that all of God's plans to save and redeem and to restore are just about making things better for us. No, all of it is ultimately for His own glory, 
for his own praise. That's what the Bible is about. That's what this world exists for. That's what we've been saved for. And so as we look at Zechariah 14 this morning, as we close out our series through the book of Zechariah, we'll see that this text calls us to respond to the fact that our glorious, triune, holy God, the Lord, our King, is worthy of holy, devoted worship. And my prayer this morning is that our hearts would be stirred with awe at the glory of our God, so that we live all of our life with a passion for holiness and worship. And in our text, we're going to see three responses that we must have to our king's worthiness. Three responses to our king's worthiness. The Lord, the king, is worthy of worship. Therefore, first, we must proclaim to the nations the call to worship. We must proclaim to the nations the call to worship. Verse 16. Then everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Booths. So in that verse right there, we are seeing everything that we've been waiting for since the beginning of the book of Zechariah. We saw last week that the Lord returned to be king and now we are seeing him crowned as king, not just over his people Israel, but over all the earth. He is king over all the earth. Chapter 14, we saw last week, begins with the nations gathered in Jerusalem for war against God and his people. And now chapter 14 is ending with the same nations coming to Jerusalem for worship. As one writer says, the nations are changed from enemies to friends who now worship the Lord and share in the blessings of his people. And throughout the book of Zechariah, we've seen this promise again and again. We saw it in Zechariah 2. We saw it again in Zechariah 8, that God would return to his people Israel, but that when he returns, many nations would come and join themselves to the Lord and worship him. Here in chapter 14, we're seeing the fulfillment of that promise. The Lord is king, not just over Israel, but over all the nations of the earth. And they're coming to worship and bow down to him. This is not only the fulfillment of what Zechariah has promised, but in fact, this is a promise that echoes throughout the entire scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament. From the beginning, it's God's plan to bring the nations to the blessing of knowing and worshipping him. You think of when God called Abraham. God's promise to Abraham was that in him, in, in and through his family, all nations would be blessed. When God established the nation of Israel, their purpose was to exist 
as a light to the nations around them, to show the nations around them the wisdom and grandeur of the one true God. As we read the Psalms and the prophets, again and again we see these promises of the nations gathering to worship God as King. And then as we come into the New Testament, we see these promises begin to be fulfilled through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died to save people from all nations, rose again, and commissions us to make disciples of all Nations, as we read the book of Acts, we will see the gospel go from Jerusalem to Judah to Samaria to the ends of the earth as the Apostle Paul, the Apostle to the Gentiles, preaches the gospel to the nations. And the Bible comes to conclusion, this theme comes to climax in the book of Revelation, where at the end of God's story we see the Lamb of God, Jesus Christ, God our King, Receiving the worship from the nations. Revelation 5. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God. And they shall reign on the earth. And if you read that entire chapter, Revelation chapter 5. You'll see this amazing worship service. Where all of creation is worshipping the Lamb of God and God on His throne. Even the passage that we saw this morning as Sister Lydie read, Revelation 7. This is the goal of creation and redemption. This is what God has created all things for. This is why God redeems. So that our triune God, our King, Jesus, the Lamb of God, so that the King receives the worship of which He is worthy from the nations that he has redeemed. That's what we're seeing promised here in the book of Zechariah. That's what we see in verse 16 there. Everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king. And it's using the language of the Old Testament law of the Feast of Booths. Uh, of this annual pilgrimage that people used to make for worship under the Old Covenant. It's using that language to describe how the nations would come to worship the Lord. And I would submit that this is fulfilled even now in the nations gathering to worship Christ. Now there are different ways, as we've seen again and again in Zechariah, there are different ways that passages like this can be interpreted uh, even among Bible-believing, faithful, sincere evangelicals. So one very common interpretation is this. It's that this should be taken literally uh, as pointing to a future age when Jesus will return and he will establish again an earthly kingdom of Israel under his rule and that quite literally the Feast of Booths would be established again, the temple would be rebuilt physically again, Sacrifices would be offered again. And, and this view will say that now we're, this, this is pointing forward to the nations actually coming to this physical Jerusalem and physical uh, temple to keep the Feast of Booths under the reign of Christ in the future. Now, if you've been listening to this series through Zechariah, you will guess correctly that I am not persuaded, I'm not convinced of that interpretation. One of the main reasons I'm not convinced of that interpretation is because I just don't see a category in the Bible for Jesus coming back 
and establishing again the laws of the Old Testament. As when you come to the New Testament and you read the New Testament, you read the book of Hebrews, we see that the law has been fulfilled in Christ. Paul says in Romans 10, Christ is the end of the law for everyone who believes. The author of Hebrews says that there no longer remains any other sacrifice. Jesus is the final sacrifice. All of the Old Testament law was like a trailer, is like pointing forward to the time when Jesus would come, even in his first coming, and establish his kingdom. And we see all of it fulfilled in him. As we read the New Testament, we see that every single feast, sacrifice, law finds its fulfillment in Jesus. I also think that this is not a literal uh, prediction because as we've seen through Zechariah, most of the language that the prophet Zechariah uses, this is how the prophets speak, their language is symbolic. They are using the pictures of the present day in which they lived to describe something that will be far greater. It's symbolically descri describing something that will be far greater, far more beautiful and glorious than you can even think. Remember, I've talked to you about the horse-drawn carriage. So imagine a little boy named Johnny, whose father in the year 1900 promises him a horse-drawn carriage on his 21st birthday. And then in 1921, he comes out of his house, looks across the street, and there for his 21st birthday gift is not a horse-drawn carriage, but a Ford, an automobile. Is the promise fulfilled? Yes, but it's fulfilled in, in a manner far greater than could be imagined. That's, that's what happens with these prophecies, with these pr promises, with these predictions. And to understand this even better, we have to think about the Feast of Booths and, and why the Feast of Booths was instituted. What did this Feast of Booths represent? The Feast of Booths was a time when the people of Israel would all gather to look back on how God redeemed them, saved them from Egypt and dwelled with them in their wanderings. Think of Leviticus chapter 23 where this Feast of Booths was instituted. Verses 42 and 43, you shall dwell in booths for seven days. All native Israelites shall dwell in booths. This is what the Lord is saying. That your generations may know that I made the people of Israel dwell in booths when I brought them out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. So this festival was celebrated annually to remind the Israelites how God saved them, brought them out of the land of Egypt how he dwelled with them even as they dwelled in tents. Brothers and sisters, this has been fulfilled now in our Lord Jesus Christ. He is our King who has saved us. In the Lord Jesus Christ, God came and dwelled among us and redeemed us from slavery to Satan, sin and death. And, and now you and I, we Remember that redemption through worshipping our Lord Jesus Christ. So this call to the nations to come and keep the festival of booths is fulfilled by the nations coming to worship our Lord Jesus Christ. And here's the exciting news. You and I have the privilege of calling those nations, of summoning them to worship our King by proclaiming to them the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our Lord Jesus came, he died on the cross, 
the Son of God perfectly as the only one who could take away our sins. He died as a substitute for sinners, taking upon himself the judgment of God that we deserve. He rose from the dead. He rules and reigns. And he says to his people, all authority on heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And I am with you to the end of the age, says our Lord Jesus Christ. Brothers and sisters, ECC exists to be an embassy of the Lord Jesus Christ, growing disciples from the nations to be gospel ambassadors to the nations. You, dear members of ECC, are gospel ambassadors of the risen Lord Jesus. And let me tell you a secret. COVID-19 does not change that. Staff transitions, pastoral transitions do not change that whatever trials may come our way it doesn't change the commission that king jesus has given to us to proclaim to the nations the call to worship and that's why this is what we need to be doing as a church raising up sending out and supporting those who will plant churches and proclaim christ and him crucified proclaim the risen lord jesus to the nations and maybe you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus. And we want you to know that it is, it is our passion for you to know and to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he is the only way to be made right with God. You see, God has created us naturally to be worshippers. You're always worshipping something. And maybe you're here and you don't worship Jesus. Well, maybe you worship something else or someone else. And ultimately, our Lord Jesus Christ, the King will receive the worship of which he is worthy. And if you have failed to worship him, you will receive judgment for your sin. So if you're here and you don't know Jesus, we want to call you that today your sins may be forgiven, that God would give you a new heart to know and to worship the only true God and King if you would turn from your sin and put your trust in him. I want to speak to our Christian brothers and sisters here. What a beautiful and glorious privilege this is. You know, I remember uh, just a couple of years ago before the pandemic, there was this total solar eclipse that was happening. I think it was about 5.30 in the morning and everyone got so excited to see this once in a lifetime event. I know of people who drove way out into the desert uh, to see the eclipse. I woke my children up like five early in the morning and we, we drove down to a location to see it. I saw a bunch of people from ECC there. Everyone was telling everyone ahead of time where to go and see this glorious, beautiful spectacle. Brothers and sisters, we get to tell people, to show people the glory, the magnificence, the majesty of the King. We get to call them to join us in beholding our God. Why do we proclaim the call to worship? Why do we engage in missions? I love what John Piper says. He says, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is the ultimate goal of the church. Missions exists because worship doesn't. And friends, that worship begins now. It takes place here. 
We are seeing this worship of the nations to our Lord Jesus Christ the King fulfilled right now at ECC as we gather as a church from the nations. And brothers and sisters, make no mistake, the center of worship, the blazing center of worship for the people of God is our gathering for corporate worship. Weekly. Our gathering, this gathering for worship is the orbit that keeps our Christian lives revolving around the glory of God. And so that's the second response that this text calls us to have. First, we must proclaim to the nations the call to worship. Second, we must prioritize our gathering for corporate worship. We must prioritize our gathering for corporate worship. Verses 16 to 19. Everyone who survives of all the nations that have come against Jerusalem shall go up year after year to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the feast of booths. And if any of the families of the earth do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. And if the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. I said we must prioritize our gathering for corporate worship. And when you hear that word corporate worship, you know, don't, don't be thinking about co corporations or something like that. It's not talking about the worship of corporations. It's about what we do as a church. So corporate worship is a way of referring to the fact that we are called to worship God as a people together. Right? And I believe we are seeing this call to worship God together, gathered as his people, in this passage. That's what the Feast of Booths represents. Notice they are called to go up to Jerusalem year after year to worship the king. If the families of the earth, verse 17, do not go up to worship the king, the Lord of hosts, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there shall be no rain. There is a command, a call to come to Jerusalem to present yourself and worship the Lord. And of course, that is using the Old Testament, Old Covenant form and language of the Feast of Booths. Brothers and sisters, this is fulfilled in the New Covenant. Remember, in the Feast of Booths, they were to remember how God rescued them from Egypt. In the New Covenant, we are called to remember how the Lord Jesus Christ rescued us from Satan, sin and death. And that act of remembering, of gathering to remember what Jesus has done, that act of coming and presenting ourselves to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, that takes place in our weekly physical gathering for corporate worship. In this gathering, it's taking place right now. And normally we tend to think sometimes, you know, especially in this day and age, Christians have fallen into this pattern of thinking where we think it's all about us. I'm coming once a week, some, some of us tend to think, to get my spiritual vitamin dose to have my own personal worship experience it's, it's very sad you know that even the language of worship has become so consumer oriented you know like you go to the mall and 
watch a movie and say, oh, how was that movie for you? People, we tend to talk about, how, how was worship for you? Like going to a restaurant and having a meal. Oh, you know, how did you like that restaurant? Oh, how did you like that church? It becomes about us. And the result of that kind of consumer mindset has been exposed by the Lord in this season of COVID-19. The result is that we begin to think that by, you know, even if we're not together with God's people in God's presence, even if I just watch, watch a worship service online, that there's no difference. Because this just exists to feed me and meet my need and that's it. Brothers and sisters, Matt Merker in his excellent new book on worship, the book is called Corporate Worship, he says this, We gather as disciples, not consumers. I would add, we gather as disciples and ambassadors, not consumers. The goal of a worship service is not to entertain or to provide an inspiring experience. It is to honor the king and make him known. You know, from beginning to end of the Bible, the entire Bible, the whole Bible reveals that God always requires and commands his people to gather together, physically gather together in his presence. Throughout the Old Testament, in the Old Testament law, you'll see God commanding his people to gather regularly in Jerusalem. All of Israel was to come to Jerusalem three times a year physically and present themselves to the Lord. You were not allowed to go and have your own private worship anywhere else. They were not allowed to build a shrine somewhere else. That was an abomination. That was sin. They were not allowed to create and manufacture this worship experience in other places. They had to come and present themselves and gather. And as we come to the New Testament, as we read the book of Acts, as we see the inauguration of the church of our Lord Jesus Christ, from the very beginning of Acts, we see that the church is a gathering people. They gathered together for worship. As you read the book of Acts, it's eminently clear. On a weekly basis, the church gathered, and they gathered even daily, to worship the Lord Jesus Christ. Throughout church history, Christians have gathered, even at the cost of life, where you know you're going to be persecuted, where you know that the government is going to come in and, and slay you for worshiping Jesus. Christians have gathered in the early church. They met underground. They didn't say, oh, let's just worship God in our homes. They met underground at threat of exposure and even death. Every New Testament letter was written to churches to be read at their gatherings. Brothers and sisters, there is no category, and I say this as humbly and sincerely as I can, there is no category in the Bible of people worshiping God without regularly gathering together physically in his presence it's a part of the covenant that we have made one and with one another as members of ECC our covenant the second point of our church covenant says we will gather together regularly to worship the Lord and hear his word in a couple of days ago I received a whatsapp message from pastor Wiley and it was a reminder to me of a message he sent earlier and he wrote in all caps, Did you read this? Please don't forget. And it was a, kind of an important thing. You see, uh, they have uh, the Jenkins family is uh, out of the country for a couple of months. They'll be back in August. And they have a lot of beautiful plants in their house. 
and he had asked me to make sure that we water the plants. And he said, don't forget. Now, unfortunately, Pastor Wiley doesn't know that yours truly is the worst keeper of plants in, in the history of the world. You know, we've had plants since we've been married uh, years and years. We've kept trying to do this. People have given us plants when they leave from Abu Dhabi. And for some reason, they just all wither and die. And, and I think the reason is, you know, either they don't get enough sunlight or they don't get enough water. If a plant doesn't have water and sunlight, a plant ultimately will wither and die. And brothers and sisters, the Christian life needs the water and sunlight of corporate worship, of gathered worship with the people of God. In our new members class, I make it an uh, emphasis. It's a point that I always try to share with everyone coming into membership at ECC. What is the most important time in your life every week? What are the most important two hours of your week each week? And we tend to think maybe it's my personal quiet time. No, 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 it's not. The, the most important time in your life every week, commanded by God, expected by God, is when you gather with the church to worship Him. This time. Everything should flow into this in your week and everything should flow out of this. This is the mountaintop where we meet with our God, our King, where we come to worship and bow down to the King, our Maker. I recently read an article uh, by a writer and he says this. And I'm going to say this as sensitively and graciously as I can. He says, some will think this is insensitive. Some will think this is long overdue. But I want to make sure it's said. Not physically gathering with the church hurts you spiritually. And so he says, dear pandemic weary Christian, work to gather again with your church. And I'm speaking especially to those of you, dear brothers and sisters who are watching online. I plead with you as your pastor, work to gather again with ECC. You know, maybe you are truly seriously hindered due to being a high-risk individual for COVID-19. And if that's the case, we all understand. You know, but if most other things are back to normal in your life, if you're going to the malls and you're going to physically to your workplace, it's a far greater likelihood that you will catch COVID at one of those places than you. I mean, look at this. Like I'm pre preaching behind this glass screen and I'm the only one here without a mask. We're all distanced. There's a far greater likelihood that you'll catch COVID somewhere else than you would in this gathering. And if everything else is back to normal in your life, but you still haven't gathered with the people of God, dear brother, dear sister, I want you to check what's going on in your heart. Don't prioritize your own convenience. I think for a lot of, I've even talked with people who said, well, I just find it more convenient, you know, or, you know, I know I got, I got lazy. It's just easier to just watch it online. But God commands and expects us to gather and worship him. Or maybe you say, oh, well, I try every week and I can't get seats. Very simple. Send me an email. I'll make sure you get a seat. All right. If you haven't been able to worship for over the last 12 months because you tried and tried every single week and couldn't get a seat all this time, I'll make sure you get a seat so that you can be here. Look again at verses 17 to 19. Look at this. There is a punishment for failing to worship the Lord. 
Verse 17, there will be no rain on them. If they do not go up to Jerusalem to worship the king, there will be no rain on them. If the family of Egypt does not go up and present themselves, then on them there will be no rain. There shall be the plague with which the Lord afflicts the nations that do not go up to keep the feast. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to the nations who do not go up to keep the feast. Lack of rain in the Old Testament was a classic covenant curse. It's what God did to the people when they failed to honor him as Lord. He brought a lack of rain. You see this over and over again in the Old Testament. Because rain was necessary for them in an agrarian culture to live. Maybe the lack of rain that you are experiencing in your life right now is a result of failure to worship the Lord. A result of failure to prioritize this gathering. Perhaps the trials that you're experiencing right now are because of your failure to honor the Lord in this season. Maybe the emptiness that you're experiencing, and I say this to you if you've never been to church all this time and you're watching today, maybe the emptiness that you're feeling in your soul right now are a result of your failure to prioritize and seek the Lord. Maybe this lack of rain is God's way of speaking to you and telling you to prioritize the corporate worship of God with his saints. And, you know, make no mistake, it is different. When you're sitting at home in your pajamas and watching online, you don't get to hear the faithful saints of God sing. You know, I think about the Friday that I came back right after the Lord took my dad from cancer and, and my first Friday back in church six months ago. And I just remember just feeling so weak and broken. And, and hearing the saints of God singing around me, is he worthy? Is he worthy? I just remember how that caused my soul to erupt into praise of God, who is always good and always worthy of our worship. I think of a few weeks ago when I was standing there and getting ready to preach and I was feeling tired and weary and Pastor Kurt has just left and I'm thinking of all the responsibility that I face. And I remember we were singing and from behind me I heard the beautiful loud voice of our sister Joy Contado singing praise to God. I told her after the service, thank you for ministering to me, sister, with your singing. He is worthy of our voices. You can't hear those voices the way you can hear at home. You can't see the expressions on the faces of the people of God as they come to worship what God is doing in their lives and in their hearts. These are all things that you miss. We need to see our brothers and sisters, hear their voices sing. We need to be with one another as we sit under God's word and worship him together. But more importantly, even more than that, it's critical to remember that we need to gather because the Lord, the King, is worthy of our attention, is worthy of our physical presence, is worthy of our worship. One author says, Jesus designed Christianity and the progress of our discipleship to center around gatherings. The math is therefore simple. Gathering with the church is spiritually good for you. Not physically gathering with the church spiritually hurts you. And yes, this was written during the season of COVID-19. And I agree with what he says. As your pastor, brothers and sisters, I am concerned for your souls. I am concerned that if you're not attending corporate worship, you are not receiving the water and the sunlight that you need to grow 
as a plant of God. And I'm concerned that there is a withering of souls among the members of our church. You know, one of the fiercest warning passages in the New Testament is written concerning neglecting gathering with the church for worship. That's in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 25 to 27. Look at this. The author says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Judgment day is coming. Don't neglect to meet together. Look what he says after that. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, what is sinning in the context? It is neglecting to gather. If we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. There is a judgment that neglect, for those who neglect to gather. We see this in our passage, verse 19. This shall be the punishment to Egypt and the punishment to all the nations that do not go up to keep the Feast of Booths. And make no mistake, when Jesus, when God inspired these passages through the Holy Spirit, it's not like he didn't know about COVID-19. He knew about the danger. And again, I want to say, if you're a high-risk individual, I understand, I want to be sensitive and gracious to you. Right? That's a different case. But this is, I'm talking to those who, everything else has gone back to normal, but this one area of your life hasn't. I want to say this, brothers and sisters, our worship gathering is primary and central. But our worship is not only limited to our corporate worship gathering. Our worship is meant to ripple outward from this gathering throughout all of life. And that's our third response from today's text. First, we must proclaim to the nations the call to worship. Second, we must prioritize our gathering for corporate worship. And third, we must practice a lifestyle of holy worship. We must practice a lifestyle of holy worship. Look at verses 20 to 21. And on that day, there shall be inscribed on the bells of the horses, holy to the Lord. And the pots in the house of the Lord shall be as the bowls before the altar. And every pot in Jerusalem and Judah shall be holy to the Lord of hosts, so that all who sacrifice may come and take of them and boil the meat of the sacrifice in them. And there shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. So what's going on here? Where was this phrase, holy to the Lord, used and inscribed in the Old Testament? Well, If you go back to the book of Exodus, chapter 28, you'll see this. You shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the graving of a signet, holy to the Lord, and you shall fasten it on the turban by a cord of blue, and it shall be on the front of the turban. So what was this uh, insignia, holy to the Lord? It was to be on the forehead of the high priest of Israel. And now this inscription, holy to the Lord, is so common that it's common even, in, even on the bells of the horses in the streets. In the Old Testament, under their worship, you had pots and vessels that were specifically kept for the use in the temple. They were sacred and holy, devoted to the use for the worship of God. They were not supposed to be used anywhere else, and you couldn't use any other pot just to boil a sacrifice to God. But now what's happening in this text? Everything is holy. 
You're bringing common household pots and using it to worship God. The pots and vessels in the house of the Lord are no different from the pots and vessels in the home of the people. And what this text is saying is now, everything is devoted to God. Everything is consecrated to God. That's the definition of holiness, my friends. If you're wondering what holiness means, what is the meaning of the word holy? The word holy, H-O-L-Y, means holy, W-H-O-L-L-Y, holy, fully, completely devoted to God, consecrated to God. And here at the end of Zechariah 14, Zechariah is telling us there's coming a day when the holy will be common and the common will be holy because everything will be holy. The temple will be rebuilt. That's the promise of Zechariah. But Zechariah now telling us that the whole city is the temple and the whole creation is the temple. The new temple is the new Jerusalem, which is the new creation where everything is holy. And friends, that day is coming where all will be perfectly holy. But that day begins right now for all of us who are in Jesus Christ. Because Jesus died to cleanse the temple and to take unholy, defiled sinners like us and make us holy to the Lord. Jesus died as the perfect sacrifice to cleanse us and make us holy so that all of our lives could be lived as a sacrifice of praise to his holy name. We are not saved by being holy. We're not saved by our works. But we are saved for being holy. To be devoted completely to God. And so brothers and sisters in Christ. All of your life is holy. Is devoted. Is to be consecrated to the Lord. You know, sometimes we tend to compartmentalize our life and we think of, you know, oh, this 15 minute slice or if you're more spiritual, half an hour slice or if you're really spiritual, one hour slice, that, that's that quiet time, that time, that's my worship time and that's my God time and the rest of the day when I'm driving in the car or doing other things, that's just, you know, in the world. But that's not what the Bible tells us. No, all of life is holy to the Lord. Everything you do, your rearview mirror in your car as you drive to work, holy to the Lord. Your desk and your laptop where you sit all day and work, holy to the Lord. Your kitchen where you cook the pots with which you make whatever you make to bless others, holy to the Lord. Your Xbox when you're playing video game, holy to the Lord. Exhausted mothers, I want to speak to you. Even those moments when you're losing sleep, when you're nursing the baby, when you're changing another diaper, holy to the Lord. You know, there was a story of this guy, King Midas. Have you ever heard that myth of King Midas? You know, he made a wish that everything that he touches would turn to gold and then he ends up touching his daughter and she turns to gold and he's sad. Everything he touches turns to gold. Well, for a Christian, everything you touch, except sin, turns to worship to God, is holy to the Lord, is meant to be holy to the Lord. Let's live our lives like that. And one day, brothers and sisters, we will see this glorious, beautifully, beautiful heavenly city where all is worship and all is holy. That city will fill all creation. It will be beautiful and glorious and never-ending. But our pre preparation for that day begins today. Through living lives that are wholly, fully devoted to God. No relationship in your life is accepted, is, is you know, excluded from this. All of it belongs to the Lord. 
No habits in your life can be separated from this. No, all of it belongs to the Lord. Every area of life must be brought as worship to our King. You know, I often hear people say, God wants you to be holy, not happy. And recently I saw a pastor say, that's actually incorrect. And I really like what he said. He says, God wants you to be holy and happy. Because make no mistake, true happiness is found in biblical holiness. The Westminster Catechism so famously says, what is the chief end of man? What is our chief purpose in life? It's to glorify God and enjoy Him forever. And John Piper says, I love this, we glorify God by enjoying Him forever. But there will be some who will be excluded from this beautiful holy city. Look again, verse 21. There shall no longer be a traitor in the house of the Lord of hosts on that day. Now the traitor, uh, in some translations they say the Canaanite or a foreigner, was used to represent those who were unclean, who used the worship of God for their own gain, as those who did not truly know the Lord. And we see a symbolic action of this in the life of our Lord Jesus Christ where he goes into the temple and turns over the tables of the moneylenders and cleanses the temple of all that is unclean. That's a foreshadowing of when his kingdom comes. Jesus, in his heavenly city, will have all those who are holy and belong to him. We will enjoy life there forever. But those who have not given their lives to Jesus will be excluded. But if you're here, friend, today and you don't know Jesus, I want to tell you that there is entry into the holy heavenly city available to you today. I want to speak to the children here. Children, you can enter God's holy heavenly city today by becoming holy to the Lord, by belonging to the Lord. The problem is, of course, that we are unholy, right? We, we come into this world sinful. We are sinful and unholy, defiled and unclean. So how does the unholy become holy? It's through a perfect sacrifice. It's through Jesus, the Son of God, who came to earth, dwelled among us, lived as a man, the perfect life that we could not live, died on the cross as the perfect sacrifice, taking upon himself the judgment that we deserve as our substitute, so that whoever turns from sin and believes in him will no longer be unholy, but will be holy and belong to God. And so if you're here, dear non-Christian friend, I want to call to you, I want to cry to you, I want to call the children to turn from your sin and trust in Jesus who will give you holiness and true happiness. You know, uh, the Nazis in the last century, a greatly evil political uh, uh, party in Germany that was at the center of World War II, the Nazis led by Adolf Hitler. There was a famous Nazi general who said this about Christianity. He said, the Nazis and Jesus have this in common. We both demand the whole man. As we end the book of Zechariah this morning, Zechariah leaves us with this question. Does your life fully 
completely belong to King Jesus. He's the only one who can make us pure. He's the only one who can cleanse our hearts. He's the only one who can make us holy. He's the only one who establishes God's kingdom. He's the only entry into God's heavenly city. He is the author of God's new creation. He is the conquering warrior who will win God's battle. He is God's holy temple. He is the one who holds this universe in place. He is the only true God and King. And I pray that you'll have a Copernican revolution in your life today and see that you were made to worship him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for our glorious King Jesus. We ask that we would live all of our life in worship to him and enjoy him, enjoy you forever. Amen.